Amen. All right, church, what a privilege to get to be with you this morning. I'm so glad that you made it to the 11 o'clock downtown. Uh, my name is Will Boschin. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. And, uh, you know, before I was serving as, I'm our North Congregation pastor, so that's why I, I've never seen you maybe. And uh, I used to come to this congregation a long, long time ago and worship here. And I would sit, my wife and I would sit in the very back row of the bleachers so that we had a backrest. And also because we showed up super late all the time. And so if that's you, you're in good company. Uh, before I was... Um, a pastor here at the Austin Stone, though, I was a pastor in a small church in Fort Worth. And in the part of town that I lived in, there was this enormous cemetery. So it took up, well, it took up 196 acres. It was huge. And so driving, driving by it all the time, it took a long time to drive by it. It was just, just this huge thing that I would drive past all the time. And so one day I decided, I'm just going to pull into this place. I'm going to try to see just... How big is this cemetery? What is going on? You know, I wanted to, to, to not just drive past it, but to pull in and see what I could see in this space. And I think death can be like that. We drive by it all the time. It's around us all the time. But we either spend inordinate amounts of energy trying to ignore it or try to hold it back. You know, so uh, it's like that. And so on that day, I decided I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull in. And and sort of take it head on here and, and engage with death. And, you know, this cemetery was 196 acres and filled just the whole thing with these gravestones. Just, I was driving, with my windows down, it was in the springtime, I was driving just really slowly, looking like a total weirdo, I think, and, uh, and just driving just mile after mile, it felt like, on these roads, just looking at names and names and names. And, you know, these gravestones, they all had a little bit of difference to them. They might have different things written, names, obviously different colors or maybe like pictures or something on it. Um, my father-in-law told me about a gravestone he saw recently on the back of it just in Sharpie. It said, she made the best meatloaf, you know. And it was such a weird thing to have on a gravestone. But every one of them that I saw, for all their differences, they had these similarities. And, and they all had these two dates. A birth date and a death date. A birth date and a death date. A birth date and a death date. All of them except for presumably the people who have picked out their gravesite. So they picked it out and they have their birth date. And now they're just sort of like, you know, they left it blank, obviously, because they're like, I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know when my death date is, but I know where I'm, I'm going to, it's coming eventually. So I went ahead and they like, you know, pre-bought the space. And... You know, it's, at first I'm like, oh, I don't know, would I want to do that? Is, it, is that kind of crazy to do? I think actually it would be crazier for them to walk around not expecting to end up in a grave. It would be crazy for us. <laughs> the crazier person is the person walking around expecting something other than death. Because the death rate, as it has been said, is 100%, right? 100% of people die. You're like, I'm so glad I came today. <laughs> to church, and 100%, except, except that it's not quite, not quite 100%, because there's these two people, if you search the scriptures, there's two people in the history of humanity who have, who it said have not tasted death. 
the scriptures say that there's two of them. One is Elijah. Now, if you read the Old Testament, Elijah is this like really prominent figure who does crazy stuff all the time. And he's calling down fire and miraculous things. And there's a ton written about him. But the other that is said to have not tasted death, we read very, very little of. Just a tiny amount that we hear about this mysterious figure called Enoch. But it's Enoch, not Elijah, but Enoch, who shows up in this section of Scripture, section of Hebrews that we are studying right now called the Hall of Faith. And it's surprising that Enoch shows up here. It's because at one level, uh, it's surprising because his life, nowhere is mentioned in, the, in Genesis, in the account of his life, it doesn't mention anywhere uh, that he had faith. But at another level, this is exactly the point of the author of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith. What he's doing is walking us through a series of portraits that reveal faith in the lives of those who live before the arrival of Jesus. All, a lot of these people, like Enoch, are not actually known for their faith necessarily. But faith is what defined them because faith is what defined their relationship with God. It was not their IQ. It was not their physical strength. It was not their social status or their tax bracket or their successes or their failures that define their relationship with God. It was their faith. And the point of the hall of faith is not just to point out what these people had, but to call us to the most essential thing that we need. So through Enoch's exceptional lack of death, the author of Hebrews is helping us see why faith is so essential to our life. In his lack of death, we see why faith is so essential to our life. And so my hope for you is that in this portrait of Enoch today, that you will see why faith is not just an essential component of somebody's life, but for the life that you are longing to live, for your life that you are longing to live, the life that you were made to live. Faith is the most essential component of that life. Okay? And so first, let's just look, ask this question. Who is Enoch and why is he so exceptional? So Enoch, he's referred, he's, or he's referenced in other parts of the Bible. So you hear about him in other places. But we encounter him directly only in Genesis 5 in this lists, list of descendants of Adam. And so after Adam's first son, Cain, killed his second son, Abel, which we heard about last week if you were here. After that, we get a list of descendants of Adam. So Adam had Seth, and then Seth had Enosh, and Enosh had Kenan, and Kenan had Mahalalel, and Mahalalel had Jared, and Jared had Enoch. And, you know, when I'm reading that list, I'm always like, Jared? Wow, I didn't know that name has been around that long. I have a good friend named Jared, and, uh, and I'm always like, that's a super normal name. Mahalalel was like, guys, this, my name's crazy, so let's just do Jared. And uh, that's what I, I, I find myself thinking about sometimes. And I have to say, hey, that's not what this is happening. Okay, let's pay attention to what this is about. Because when you read the list of Genesis, in Genesis, what you actually see, not just besides the names and, you know, hard to pronounce or easy to pronounce like Jared, what you see is that there's this rhythm to it. So-and-so lives this long and died. So-and-so lived this long and died. So-and-so lived this long and died and died and died. And this cadence of death begins to form over the course of the chapter. And you get to verse 23. It says, thus 
All the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now you're like, wow, that's a really long time. In the whole scheme of things, yes, for us it's a really long time. In his day and age, people were living to like 800 or 900. And so, you know, just take it, he's like 30, okay. Um, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and what would you expect? And he died. But that's not what it says. It says this, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And so Enoch acts as this sort of record scratch on the melody of mortality that's being played out in Genesis 5. And it's the exception, not just here in this list of descendants, but across the scriptures, right? Which we just said, Elijah was the only other one. Elijah's the only other person. You search all the scriptures. Everybody dies except for these two guys. And Elijah, we get this sort of wild picture of like angel chariots scooping him up and taking off into heaven. And Enoch, we don't get that. It just says God took him. Now, again, I sort of like this inner skeptic in me. I'm like, he was 365. It's like, it seems kind of old. I, you know, I forgot that he's just 30. And, uh, you know, did they just lose him? Did he just get lost and they're like, where did he not go? And they're like, I don't know. Probably God took him, I guess, you know. Is that, what, is that what we're seeing here? Is that they just lost him? It's like a missing person's case? That's not what we see. The passage is clear. At 365, in the prime of his life, God took him. That is, he was taken from life on this earth to life in God's presence without ever seeing death. And again, we want to we get caught up. I want to get caught up on like, what does that look like? How did they know? How did they see it? Was there another angel chariot? How many of these are there? That's what I want to get caught up on. But, but that's not what's most important because that's not what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures don't say how he was taken up. They say why he was taken up. Why was Enoch taken by God? That's what 11, verse, uh, Hebrews 11.5 tells us. This is we're going to be today. Hebrews 11.5 and 6. And verse 5 tells us why Enoch was taken. It says this. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. So you see, by faith, this happened. It was his faith. And so we read the account of Genesis, though, and it doesn't say anything about his faith. And the author of Hebrews didn't make a mistake. It wasn't like, I thought I saw faith in there. It doesn't make a mistake. It's on purpose. He's referencing not just descriptions of faith in the Old Testament. He's not doing a word search for faith and saying, oh, you can see what it looks like here. No, no, no. That's not what he's doing. He's going to find and show how everything that these commended saints, like Enoch, were doing were a result of their faith. And so what he wants to do is explain why faith is the reason for Enoch's exceptional lack of death. And so that's why he goes on and he says, Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That's why he was taken. Because he had faith that pleased God. But where is it declared that he pleased God? Because if you, again, if you read Genesis 5, you just go read it. Where's the commendation that he pleased God? We look back at the Genesis account, and, and like we said, there's just this list of names Adam and Seth and Enosh and Jared and Methuselah. They all lived and died, lived and died, lived and died, is what it says. But did you notice for Enoch, before he was taken, do you know what it said of him? Look at verse 22 of chapter 5 of Genesis. It says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God 
and he was not, for God took him. You know, no one else is described in this way. In case you think, oh, surely everybody was walking with God, right? No, this is like the pre-flood days where God is about to wipe out the entire world except for Noah through a flood because nobody was walking with God except Enoch. No one else is described this way. It's all just they lived and they died. They lived and they died. But Enoch walked with God and then was taken. And so this whole not dying thing is not the only thing that's exceptional about Enoch. What we're seeing is that Enoch's exceptional lack of death is the result of an exceptional life. For 300 years, which for us, 300 years ago, in case you are too embarrassed to pull out your calculator and do the math, I did that. Uh, I looked back at 1723. That's 300 years ago. So a long time. For 300 years, Enoch didn't just live. For 300 years, he walked with God. Now, to walk with God means to live in relationship with God. Moving through days and weeks and seasons and years with him. Think about somebody that you have walked through a season of life with. Maybe it was somebody, you, you know, your best friend in high school or in college, or somebody who was particularly close to you in the season of tragedy, or in the midst of a transition, somebody who was walking with you. We say that because that person has a deep connectedness. You have a deep connectedness with that person in that season of your life, a unity that you must have in order to walk with them. To say that you walked through with them in a season of life, that must mean that you had a deep unity with them. And so, for the record, this is also true of just going on walks with people. If, and otherwise, you're just walking at the same time unless you're walking with them. You have to have a connectedness about them. Some of you might know one of our pastors, Halimsa, who's our pastor of teaching and theology. He's, I'm his neighbor. He's not my neighbor. I guess I'm his neighbor. And that's what they always tell me. And um, uh, I'll go on walks with Halim sometimes. And, and he's a great preacher, but he's also an extremely fast walker. And so I got to like get my hips involved and everything. I'm like trying to keep up. And otherwise, if I don't, then we're just both walking. I'm not walking with him. Do you see? You have to have proximity with somebody. And for somebody to be able to do, do that with God, that means that that person must have pleased God. They must be pleasing to him. That's why... One of the most ancient translations from, of Genesis from Hebrew into Greek. So the most ancient one is called the Septuagint. It's, you know, nerdy stuff. But if you want to go look into it, the Septuagint translates walking with God as what? Pleasing God. Because that's the essence of what it means to walk with God, is to be somebody that is pleasing to him. But my question then is, why is pleasing God and walking with him so exceptional? Why is that so rare? Why is Enoch the only one doing it? Well, it's, it wasn't always exceptional. It didn't used to be that way. The first place you see God walking, that word that, that, that Enoch walked with God, that word walked shows up another time in Genesis chapter 3. In the moments after Adam and Eve had rejected God's rule and realized their guilt. God is, it says he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's the same word. He's walking there. And Adam and Eve, when they heard him, they hid from God. Now, the implication of this is sort of crazy. The crazy thing to imagine is that before that day, 
The day before that, like, you know, sin enters the world on Wednesday or whatever it was. And on Tuesday, when God had come and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, what that means is that Adam and Eve weren't just walking with God in some metaphorical sense. They went on walks with God. What an amazing thing. They had perfect proximity with God. They were enjoying then the ultimate goodness of fellowship with the one who at his right hand is pleasures forevermore. They went on walks with him. And you know what? That is actually what God made us to do. That proximity with him is what we were made for. In Genesis, it says we are made in his image and in his likeness. It's not just being repetitive. It's describing two different things. It's it's saying that we were meant to live in relationship with God and to be his ruling representatives in creation. But not some distant ruling representatives, but active communion with God representing his rule and reign in creation. It's what we were made to do was walk with God. Walking with God, in fact, is the essence of the life that you are most longing for. But then why isn't everybody doing it? Because the moment that Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan, sin sin entered into their hearts. Okay? Sin entered into the universe not by, like, you know, outside coming in and kind of seeping in like some strange thing. It actually came in through the hearts of humanity. Satan whispered a lie into the hearts of Adam and Eve, and then they believed that lie. And so sin entered into the universe, fracturing Adam and Eve's relationship with God, with one another, and with creation itself. And decay and entropy has set in from that moment on. And from that moment on, human beings... Adam and Eve, and then their offspring, which is us, were the enemies of God. The enemies of God. And you're like, man, that seems like kind of extreme. Do we have to just go to straight enemies? Is there no, like, interim space? Can I kind of just be okay with God? Tim Keller framed this in a helpful way, Pastor Tim Keller. He said that in the moment in the garden... When sin entered the world, it was nothing less than a declaration of humanity's war with God. Because ultimately it was a claim on his throne that occurred. We don't need to listen to you, God. We can do whatever we want to, God. We will decide what's best for us. We will take your suggestions, but we will decide because we are king or we are queen. And with God, we can't just agree to disagree. It's not like, well, you take this part of the universe, I'll take this part. The whole thing is his. And so because of God's justice that insists that sin must be punished, he is holy. And so tolerating sin would make him unjust. And all of that, that creates a problem for proximity with God. That's why everybody's not doing it is because we're at war with him. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because in the flesh, we are either overtly or covertly rebelling against him. We might put some polite language to it, but ultimately it's hostility against God. 
And Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. So it's not even a matter of how hard you try to not be hostile to God. It's in our very nature. Even in our attempts at obedience, ultimately what we're doing is trying to build an identity of righteousness apart from God. Which is why Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's going to have to be something else, faith, in order for us to not be sinning and therefore losing proximity to God. So the question isn't why, the question is not why isn't everybody walking with God? The question then becomes how can anyone, how can anybody walk with God? How can anyone walk with him? Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But Enoch did. Do you see it? Enoch did. How was he doing that? That's what the author of Hebrews is driving home. He could not have done that without faith. It was his faith, even though Genesis 5 says nothing of his faith. It doesn't need to because his life is displaying something that only faith could have empowered. The fact that he was pleasing, with, with pleasing God was only possible because of his faith. The exceptional life and lack of death of Enoch ultimately highlights the rule of faith. It's the rule of faith. And what is the rule of faith? It's what Hebrews 11.6 says. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Why? For whoever would draw near to God, that is, walk with God, please God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's what it says. Now, why these two things? Why is it these two things that somebody has to believe? Because these two beliefs, that God exists and that he rewards, are the essential elements of faith. This is what, if you boil faith down to the most essential pieces, this is what it is. And those are not actually different from what he says in Hebrews 11.1. 1, that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The author of Hebrews is just saying that Enoch had these two essential elements of faith. Believing that God exists, okay, that's the first one, which is what? The conviction of things not seen. That's the same thing. To believe that God exists is to be convicted of something that you cannot see. And so to draw near to God, you must believe that he exists. This seems like ultra basic, but get down into the weeds of it. Not that a God exists, this God exists. And this God exists absolutely. Not, not on the basis, not dependent on anything else. Independent, absolute existence is what this God is and has. He's the unchanging one. The fixed point around which everything in the universe revolves. Okay, so that's the first essential element of faith. That the conviction of things not seen, the belief that God exists. The second thing, believing that God rewards those who seek him. That's the same thing as saying that we have the assurance of things hoped for. You're hoping for a reward. You have the assurance that you'll get a reward. You're believing that God will reward those who seek him. You see, he's just repeating the same thing from verse 1. Because faith believes not only that God exists, but that he has the reward that I am longing for and is willing to, in the overflow of his goodness and his sufficiency, he is willing to reward me with himself. So faith means, to have faith means to believe that God is real and that he is rewarding. And these two things, he doesn't even explain why. Because these are, these are fundamental to the very nature of who God is. 
These two beliefs are unique because they are fundamental to the very nature of who God is. You could not possibly draw near to God and walk with God in proximity without these two beliefs. Because if you don't believe these two things about God, that he exists and that he rewards out of the overflow of his existence, those two things, if you don't believe those, then you don't believe that he is God. You don't believe he's God at all. And so there's no way you could draw near to him as God if you don't believe that he's God. And so my question for you, if you really audited your faith in your life today, what is the fixed point for your soul in this universe? What is the unchanging, absolute thing? Is it you? Is it somebody? Is it God? Whose reward are you really seeking? What is the one reward that you could not live without? The one thing that, most you, that you most long for? Who has that? Because if you can answer those two questions, you will be answering who your God really is. And so think about it this way. To believe in the existence of the God of the Bible is to recognize that he is absolute. And that is what? A declaration of his glory. That's a declaration of his glory. To say that God exists absolutely is a declaration of his glory. But to believe that he rewards those who seek him is a declaration of dependence. And so we declare both God's glory and our dependence upon him. That not only is God glorious, but in his glory we find our ultimate satisfaction. And so here's the wild thing that Hebrews is telling us today. It, it may be something that you have never considered in your whole life, that what is pleasing to God, what pleases God, is that in him you would find your ultimate pleasure. That in him you would find your ultimate pleasure. That's what pleases him. That's what it's saying. And so maybe your whole life you've been trying, you've been showing up to church, you've been checking off these religious boxes, and you've been going through all these motions trying to get around God and get him to give you the thing that you want the most, and he hasn't been doing it. And that is his kindness to you because the thing that your soul ultimately is longing for is not something that he can give you, but it is him himself. God is that thing that you're looking for. John 4, if you read John 4, there's this moment where Jesus encounters a woman at the well. And it's this beautiful moment because this woman is hurting. And, and Jesus walks up to her and, and he asks her for a drink. And, and they have this kind of exchange because that's weird for him to even ask that question. But he, he fires back at her. He says, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me for one. Because I have living water for you. And she said, sir, give me that water. It's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this like condensed theological powerhouse, it, it, it beautifully and famously says this, that the chief end of man, your purpose for existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the essence of faith, to believe that he exists in his glory and that in his glory you find your ultimate satisfaction. That's the essence of faith. 
And that's why the psalmist says in, in Psalm 87, 7, these like unblushed, it's like, it's not even written in my notes, but you got to hear it that like the famous mere Christianity quote from, from C.S. Lewis is actually in the, the Weight of Glory essay. But to say that, that we are too easily pleased with the world around us, we need to actually be looking for something better. Psalm 87, 7 says, my whole source of joy is in you. My whole, and that is a declaration of faith. It's what David means in Psalm 16:5 when he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The greatest act of faith that a human being can have is to lift up their cup to God and say, Will you please fill this? Will you fill it with you? Because nothing else will fill me. Nothing else is enough. The rule of faith is that you cannot please God without it. The reward of faith is actually God Himself. And so my question for you this morning is, do you want to walk with God? Do you want to please God? Which is another way of saying, do you want to live the life that you were made to live? Are you looking for the very best of life? Because if you are, God is telling you to surrender everything else and find in him all that you are looking for to find in him all that you are looking for. That's what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 13, 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, not begrudgingly, not because he was supposed to, not because his parents made him, not because that's what people in the South do, not because of any other cultural reason or to get something other than that treasure. He, in his joy, goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field in his joy. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. When you get who God is, when you realize how glorious he is and how great of a reward he has to offer, You'll sell everything else just to have him. You'll give up a pursuit of satisfaction in anything else just to have him. Now, some of you, you're in here today. You got here today. Somehow, by God's grace, you're in this space, and you have never seen God as that treasure. You've been looking your whole life and finding yourself disappointed. Every time a relationship has failed to give you what you're looking for, Every time a promotion has not been enough, every new possession that has gotten dusty and rusty, every time you haven't found what your soul is longing for, is pointing you to the fact that it will only ever be found in the greatest treasure that there is in God Himself. Now, some of you, you have you said, I, I found the treasure. I believe that God is a treasure. But you aren't really seeking the reward that he's offering. And to tell you the truth, I've, I've been doing this at different times in my life, and it's tragic. I believe that God is a treasure, and yet I'll just turn to another episode of something instead of turning to him to commune with God, to walk with him. You're still hunting for it in other fields, even though you said that the treasure is in that one. And what Charles Spurgeon calls that is practical atheism. 
You're living as a practical atheist. You say that there's a God, but you're not looking for your joy in him. But that's what he's offering you. Is joy unspeakable? And now some of you, some of you, you're trying. And life is hard and life is just hitting you with a barrage of things that's trying to distract or discourage your faith. And some of you need the joy of your salvation to be restored to you today. The joy of it. To look again at what is being done for you through Jesus. What you are being invited back into. Something that nobody else would get that you could never have earned. The very satisfaction of your soul that will never disappoint. Because the reward of faith, the reward of Enoch wasn't just not dying. Do you see that? The reward wasn't that he didn't taste death. It's that he got God. It was getting to do forever by sight what he had been doing temporarily by faith. Walking with God, living with God, communing with him. That's why the story of Enoch isn't just a tragedy. I've got two little kids. I have a wife and two little kids and they're amazing. And today if I just was gone, what would the world call that? Tragic. And yet we see Enoch in the prime of his life taken. It wasn't that he just missed death. It's that he got God. His life wasn't cut short. It was completed. You see that? And so church, the author of Hebrews isn't just telling us about Enoch's life of faith so that we have something to talk about on Sundays. That's not the point of why he's giving us this hall of faith so that we can just kind of walk through it and appreciate this museum of sorts. He's calling us to live lives of, our, of, of faith ourselves. And in doing so, you will get to walk with God yourself. And so I wonder if you find yourself today like Jesus' disciples did one time, asking him, will you please increase my faith? If faith is the key to walking with God, and walking with God is what my soul is most longing for, I want to do that, God. Will you help me do that? Will you increase my faith? Jesus' disciples said, will you give us more faith, Jesus? And you know what he said? You don't need more of it. You need it to be in the right place. He said if you had faith like a mustard seed, which is teeny tiny, you could do something unbelievably powerful. Because it's not about how much you have. It's where it is being placed. And so the, the amount of faith is, is not the question. It's who your faith is in today. Who do you believe exists and whose reward are you seeking? Which is why Enoch is so helpful as an example of faith. He's so helpful up to a point. But there is a point at which Enoch cannot help us anymore. There's a point at which all of these Old Testament figures, they cannot help us anymore because they were looking dimly through a light, perceiving on the horizon a promise that was still to come. Enoch was an example of faith, but Jesus is the object of our faith. Hebrews goes on to say that he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That means he's the beginning and the end of our faith. So the call of Hebrews 11, the call of Hebrews as a whole, the call of the gospel itself is to see, yes, God exists. And yes, he has a reward that can satisfy your soul. To see that truth and to see it all in the person of Jesus. That is the call of Hebrews. That is the call of the scriptures. That is the invitation of the gospel. Not just to see that a God exists, to see that this God exists. 
This God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who has spoken to us many times and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us how? By his son is what Hebrews 1 tells us. And Hebrews 1 tells us that, that Jesus is the very radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. Do you want to know and believe? Hebrews isn't just telling you have faith. Hebrews is helping you have faith by saying, look at Jesus. He's the, you want to have a conviction of things not seen? See it in Jesus because he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Look at Jesus. You want the assurance of things hoped for, the promise that God is going to keep? Look for it in Jesus because through him you can approach the throne of grace perfect confidence. You can know for certain that God is pleased with you. How? By looking more at you and all that you have done and whether or not you read your Bible enough this week, whether or not you stopped looking at pornography this week, whether or not you, you, you didn't have an affair this week, whether or not you gave enough money this week. No, none of those things. That's not how you have more faith. You have more faith by looking to God and what the scriptures are saying is look to God in the face of Jesus. Look at it in the face of Jesus because in Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. The great wonder, listen, the great wonder of this is not just that God rewards those who seek him. It's that he sought you first. Can you believe it? The ultimate satisfier of your soul came after you so that you would be satisfied in him. What a thing. He counts the righteousness of Jesus to you. That's how you know by faith that you are pleasing to God today. How does God feel about you? Well, if you're in Christ, this is how he feels. Do you remember the day that Jesus was baptized? He came up out of the water, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this kind of crazy moment. And what does God say? Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ today, if you have said, I believe that he exists, I believe that his reward is worth it, and I'm going to see it all in Jesus, then what God is saying is that, behold, today he is well pleased with you. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus has finished on your behalf. That's how he feels about you. So you want to walk with God. You want to know that he's pleased with you. Don't look more at yourself or your performance or your success or your failure. Look at Jesus. And you can know that he, he will come back. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, some of us don't have a death date because he's going to come back before we die. I don't know if he's going to come back before we die. In fact, my daughter yesterday uh, she was hanging from the monkey bars and just out of nowhere, she was like, so could Jesus come back tomorrow? And I was like, whoa, we're just riding the monkey bar zone and here she comes, six-year-old, just asking this question. So could he come back tomorrow? And I said, yeah, he could come back tomorrow. She said, could he come back next week? I said, he could come next week maybe. She said, could he come back in a thousand weeks? I said, maybe in a thousand weeks. If he does come back soon in our lifetime, then what that means is that we won't taste death if we're in him. But if he waits, if he delays, that means most of us, we will see death, unlike Enoch. We will 
face it, but we won't face the sting of it. Because the sting of death is sin. And what makes death so deadly is that it separates us from God. But we won't face that sting of death precisely because Jesus did not take the same path as Enoch. Do you see that? God himself did not escape death, but he actually walked right through it so that you can know that even in your death, you will not be separated from him. <laughs> For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And by faith, one day, we will be seated right next to him. Let's pray.